0: Welcome to a special Thanksgiving week version of Supreme Myths. I am unbelievably excited today to have in my podcast someone who I actually talked about on my last podcast, uh, which I'll get to in a minute. Judd Campbell is a professor of law at the University of Richmond. He received his undergraduate from uh, Chapel Hill, his law degree from Stanford. He clerked for the Seventh Circuit, the Second Circuit. I believe he has two master's degrees from the London School of Economics, which is, by the way, where my father went, so I kind of like that. Um, And to put it very bluntly, I think Judd is, I'm going to call him young because from my perspective, he's young. He's He's a professor of law, but he is one of the outstanding young scholars in the United States, which is exactly what Saul Cornell said last week on this podcast. Judd, welcome to it.
1: Well, thanks so much, Eric. It's great to be here.
0: Well, and I want to say one thing before we start. Um, I, I'm a very, I'm very skeptical of law review articles in general, and how we do it, and second-year students, and people have heard me rant about this before. Um, I would have to say, over the last ten years, I have learned more from your law review articles and the law review articles of anyone else that I can think of, and I mean that sincerely. And people who follow this podcast know I've had these superstars of con law on this podcast. I've learned more from you, I think, than almost anyone. So I'm really glad that you're here.
1: Well, I appreciate that. Uh, That's very kind.
0: Well, let's get into it, and and then our audience will also understand what I've learned from you. Let's begin at a fairly high level of generality. Judd is, um, uh, I think, uh, takes pride in his historian abilities, um, and I view Judd as a serious historian, so as well as a law professor. So... If you and I were two, you know, lawyers in 1793 or 1788 sitting down shooting the breeze and we wanted to talk about rights, what do rights mean, where do they come from, how do they get enforced, how would that conversation likely be different than the conversation people have today about rights, how they get enforced, where they come from?
1: Uh, well, the first thing to recognize is it would be a completely different conversation. You have to shed a lot of modern preconceptions about rights to understand how the founders were thinking. One of the core differences is that their way of thinking was framed by social contract theory, which is a way of thinking about the source of political authority within a polity that we now relegate to philosophy departments. Uh, but for them, social contract theory was a central part of their constitutional discourse. So they would have thought that your rights are rights that recognize, are recognized by the polity in the social contract prior to the creation of the Constitution. And that's a really central uh, aspect of their rights discourse um, in a couple of different ways. So one of them is that it grounds your rights claims in something other than constitutional text. Today, we tend to think that our rights come from the Constitution, and therefore, we tend to think uh, that the rights are textual objects uh, having their force through their enumeration. And at the founding, that was um, uh, a sort of very small part of rights discourse. It was possible to create through the Constitution a new limit on governmental power. The founders actually did this a couple of times. The ban on religious test oaths in Article 6, (laughs) a very esoteric provision, is an example of this. States had uh, religious tests for office holding, and the founders decided they wanted to get rid of it. So they created, through constitutional text, essentially a new right. But that's an exception. Uh, For the most part... the rights were thought to exist prior to their constitutional enumeration. And one of the ways that they justified thinking about that, or the ways they conceptualized thinking about that, was viewing rights as being enshrined in a pre-constitutional social contract, an agreement through which individuals in a hypothesized state of nature came together and created a political society. And so that way of thinking about rights just put their Um, uh, sort of conversations in a different register from the way that we would think about it as textual objects.
0: I think someone listening might ask the question, if that's all true, and I I think it is true, and by the way, people of different political persuasions have made those – Randy Barnett makes the same argument – I know you and Randy agree in a lot, but you also disagree in a lot. I mean, it's, you know, it's not, this is not just Judd Campbell. This is a fairly well, Saul Cornell said it last week, and he's a, you know, bleeding heart liberal. I don't think you're, you're that. Um, maybe I, maybe you are. I don't mean to put words in your mouth. But here's my question. Might the Constitution have changed that, though? In other words, so we had this idea prior to the federal Constitution of uh, whether we call it natural law or rights via the social contract or, or however we want to do it. But I think a a person on the street might say, wait a minute, okay, that was then. But then we went through the process of ratifying an entire new constitution that did create some new rights, certainly created new limits on on, on what government could do. So maybe it changed pretty quickly. What's the answer to that?
1: Yeah, um, so I think it's right to say that the process of writing down rights and creating the constitution as a textual object ends up having that consequence that through a series of debates that took place over the next 200 years, we begin (laughs) to think about constitutional rights in a new way. And that the enumeration of those rights in the bill of rights was an important part of that. But that was not what the people who created the bill of rights thought they were doing. They thought Madison says, we are simply writing down simple acknowledged principles. He was not thinking that the project was one of creating rights or even adding specificity to rights that already existed, but instead just to restate principles that already inhere in the uh, federal system. And so this was one of the um, recurring themes of the federalist response to anti-federalist instances that we needed a rights declaration. We needed to have a rights declaration, they said, because we have them at the state level in many states, but not at the federal level. Uh, and the Federalist response was, you don't need a declaration <laughs> of rights. The rights already exist. Now, you might think that by writing down the rights, we've basically given, uh, some, uh, endorsement to the anti-federalist position. And it's possible to read the record in that way. Um, but I think that the better way of appreciating, uh, what the, uh, debate was in the 1788 to 1789 period uh, is that there was a um, a, a political need uh, to pacify some of the anti-federalist response. The anti-federalists were pushing for a different type of bill of rights, a bill of rights that would uh, lead to a second convention, an effort to give more specificity and greater limits to what the federal government could do. And what the Federalists did was they basically preempted that by passing a much simpler Bill of Rights, a Bill of Rights that simply declared certain pre-existing principles that nobody would have disagreed with. And for that reason, you actually see a great amount of angst among the Anti-Federalists about the Bill of Rights, which is very odd. You would think that the people who are pushing for the Bill of Rights would be very excited by what um, Madison had managed to accomplish in the first Congress over a lot of Federalist objection. But that's not actually what you see. And the reason it's not what you see is because the anti-federalists didn't really think that you needed a Bill of Rights in order to have rights. What they were really pushing for was a broader opening up of a constitutional conversation about what the federal powers would be and what the structure of uh, federal authority would be. And those sorts of conversations Madison effectively preempted. So what we're left with, I think, is a restatement of basic principles that nobody would have disagreed with.
0: So, before we, I'm gonna bring this much more on the ground in a minute and to modern times. But before we do that, uh, so today, you know, if, if I'm having a, I just, this morning had a debate, uh, with Chris Green about various matters. And when we, when we talk about rights today, we generally say, well, you have a right if a court will enforce it. Or, or if you think your right has been violated, um, then, then you have to go to court to enforce that right. And my understanding is, I don't think that's how they viewed it. Uh, do I have that correct? Right.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, for the most part, rights claims uh, tended to sound in a more philosophical register. They were claims about what it was proper for the government to do, what sort of objects it was proper for the government to pursue. But the primary way that you would vindicate rights was to create a structure through which those rights would be best preserved. And in large part, that was about making sure that the system was representative, so that you were in control of your own rights through the possession of those rights by the polity and uh, with regulations coming from representatives of the people rather than some foreign authority. This is in large part what the federal anti-federalists are so anxious about. they see right. the creation of the federal government as being sort of the creation of a foreign authority uh, and they want to maintain local control um, and then also the rights can only be regulated in promotion of the public good, and that well, I'm notion sorry, did you say is, can
0: only be did you mean can be regulated in the promotion
1: can of the, be yes. and can only be okay. so the okay. um rights are ones that uh, should be regulated in promotion of the public good and can only be regulated in promotion of the public good. Crucially, though, and this ties back to the representation point, the way the founders thought about the public good was as being highly indeterminate. So it wasn't the sort of thing where judges could come up with an account of what was or was not in the public good. That was the very purpose of having representatives. And so the rights claims uh, are underneath the surface of what we would call structural uh, debates about what the government could or couldn't do. And and notice, this is coming straight out of the two primary political conflicts that the founders are aware of uh, in their historical consciousness. So one is the debate between the king and parliament. And the, the founders are Whigs. They think that the uh, parliamentary authority is the underlying source, the people have authority within the polity, and that any sort of power that Uh, The king has has to come at some point from a grant of authority from the people. And one of the ways that they defend that way of thinking is by claiming rights. So this is the Lockean account of rights. We often associate a Lockean account of rights today with a sort of proto-libertarian view. Uh, but in the 1680s, uh, the debate is about parliamentary authority versus uh, monarchical authority. And so rights claims in that way are claims in favor of a parliamentary system rather than a royalist system. And you see a very similar type of debate playing out in the American revolutionary context, where the Americans are claiming rights, including natural rights, rights that are preserved in the social contract. But they're not doing so in a way that's oppositional to governmental authority. Rather, they're doing so in a way that's oppositional to non-representative governmental authority. So they're saying we cannot, because we have control over our own rights, we must necessarily have authority to control those rights through our own representative institutions. So the debate about rights in this context is not a debate about pro-government or anti-government. It's a debate about who gets to control uh, rights within government. And it it's certainly a sort of separation judges. of powers debate.
0: And it certainly wasn't judges, right?
1: And absolutely. So judge, judges have nothing to do with right. anything <laughs> that we've been talking about yet. <laughs> okay. um, so it, it is possible for the people to recognize certain rights that operate as more determinate limits on governmental power. The quintessential examples of these would be things like the right to habeas corpus or the right to jury trial, And in those limited contexts, there were debates in politics that had been settled, mostly in the 17th century. And once those debates were settled, it was recognized that those types of rights, grounded in common law, could generally be enforced by judges. But that's a limited set of rights. And the way that those rights were understood was based on the historical Uh, understanding from the 17th century conflicts, it wasn't in any sense that the rights are operating as sort of counter-majoritarian limits more broadly, such that judges would be in control of how every right is defined and enforced.
0: So we're going to get back to that in in a second, but I want to uh, make a comment about something and get your reaction to it. I've done a lot of research into the early judicial hand-wringing over, um, the idea of judges striking down laws. And, and a lot of that is from state cases prior to ratification where there were state charters and, and, and a judge had to decide if something the legislature did or, or even a subpart of the legislature was consistent with the charter. The prisoners cases is the best example of this. Um, Dean Traynor of Georgetown has written a lot about this. So is John McGuinness. When I view those materials, what I see, and you mentioned jury trial, that's what I'm, Most of those cases involved issues involving juries. Most of those cases involved either state practices or state statutes that seemed to affect, undercut, change the role of the jury. But And this is the point I want to make. Even when wrestling with that, which you just said was one of the most fundamental ideas, you know, century old about the right to a jury trial, judges still expressed incredible reluctance and humility and modesty (laughs) To say something the state legislature did is inconsistent with what the charter says about jury trial rights. Or even after the Constitution was ratified, this came up again. Um, and, and, I, and I guess so. I guess what I'm asking you there is even when it came to jury trial disputes, judges were very modest when it came to the kind of judicial review we see today in non jury type cases. Is that a fair summary of what was going on?
1: Yes. So uh, the way judges are thinking about this is the rights themselves are held by the people and are ultimately subject to the people's definition. So we as judges are merely acting as agents on behalf of the people. But notice that the legislature is also an agent of the people. And because the legislature is representatively elected, has a better claim to speak for the people. And that makes judging a really precarious Uh, way of delineating rights. And so the judges are very cautious about trying to say, we understand the people's rights better than the people's own representatives do. That's a really uncomfortable thing to say in the 18th century. It's possible to say it, but you would want to say it in a way that is claiming some deeper underlying set of uh, limits on governmental power than simply your own imagination. And so what you have to do is ground it on something like long standing tradition so that you can right. say what the legislature has done here is actually contrary to the popular will as reflected through long standing tradition. The other thing I'll just briefly mention about the jury that becomes really important here is, and this is true of a lot of the other Fundamental positive rights that operate as more limited, uh, more determinate limits on governmental power. The jury is seen as a representative institution right. in the 18th century. It's a it's an assemblage of the people themselves, and it's seen as being necessary, not just because it's a sort of anti-tyrannical check on judicial authority. Uh, it's also seen as necessary because there's a lot of judgment to exercise in cases. And who do we want to exercise that judgment? The people themselves. The right. people themselves are in control over the definition of their own rights. And so it's crucial to have the people themselves in the driver's seat of juries, uh in in, in sitting in juries. Right. Uh, and so the jury here is especially important to protect not just as a sort of modern uh concept of a jury as a, a uh, procedural check, uh, but also because it's actually part and parcel of this broader point of uh, representative government. And a lot of the other rights operate in the same way. So the right against prior restraints, for instance, is a more determinate right limiting the government's ability to require newspapers to get advanced permission to publish something. Well, in part, that has a sort of anti-majoritarian feel to it, but it's also largely about ensuring majoritarian control through popular politics. We don't want the government controlling what people are able to say in political discourse. And so the right is there uh, supporting a broader point, which is popular control over uh, politics.
0: We're going to get back into the First Amendment in a minute. Um, so I, I have a very large question now. And 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 I don't know if you're going to be able to answer it fully in the time constraints we have or even if you've thought through your answer to this. Um, so it feels like to me, if one is going to claim the mantle of originalism today, if, if one is going to self-identify as an originalist, uh, and, of course, we have, what, five Supreme Court – four and a half Supreme Court justices who say they do – four clearly say they do. Alito sometimes says he does. I don't think Roberts has identified that way. Uh, and Alito's turn is pretty recent. But we have four or five. Uh, but in the lower courts now, we have dozens and dozens of judges who self-identify as originals. Judd, what, what, whatever – consensus you and other people who are really good with the history of that time period can come to. It seems to me, whether it's Chris Green or John McGinnis or you uh, or Saul Cornell or other historians, whatever their view of judicial involvement in rights was, it's much less than we have today. I don't think that's a debatable historical proposition. If one is going to claim the mantle of originalism, does one have to also accept that view of the relationship between judging and rights, or can one say, well, I'm an originalist when it comes to the original meaning of this or that, but I'm going to discard everything they thought <laughs> about the relationship. You, obviously, I'm showing my hand here, but we're going to discard everything we thought about the role of judges vis-a-vis rights. What's your view? on I've never actually asked you this question, I don't think, and I'm curious what your answer is.
1: Um, Well, I'm uh, tempted to invoke Yogi Berry here and say, uh, I know they can do it because I've seen it done. Uh, (laughs) This is a a context in which um, one's jurisprudential views is going to matter a lot. And that's actually a super deep question that I think can't be answered historically. But what I will say is, um, if you want to uncover how the founders approach certain constitutional problems... I think it's highly artificial to just take away one element of their approach and substitute in a modern approach and then leave the other elements in place. What you end up with by doing that uh, is a deeply distorted understanding of the way their constitutionalism worked. Uh, the second thing I'll say here is when you give judges control over delineating what the scope of rights is, you end up turning rights into something that they weren't originally thought to be which is legally determinate objects. When judges take over this project, they inevitably view rights through ways of thinking that they are trained uh, to be um, uh, the the sort of lenses they're trained to view the law through as lawyers. And that has real implications for the way the rights discourse works. So they tend to uh, want to adopt frameworks for thinking about rights that divorce rights analysis from questions of policy because that's seen as being not law. Well, if you're doing this in an 18th century stand from an 18th century standpoint, as a politician uh, acting on behalf of the people who have control over their own rights, you're not going to be forced into that way of thinking about the problem. You're not going to necessarily begin with a presumption. I have to think of this as a legal problem right. uh, as opposed to thinking as uh, as what Larry Kramer and uh, drawing on Sylvia Snowis would call a political legal problem. That is a, a sort of type of interpretive problem, but one that doesn't call for the sort of legal analysis that you would often see in courtrooms at the founding.
0: And I think there are others too. Jack Rock, Ray Cove would say that, I think. You know, I, I think mm-hmm. most, and Saul would say that. I think most of our people who are both, Like legal experts and historians would agree with that view. So I'm going to name names here and you can duck it if you want. Um, So the current co-director or maybe even director of the San Diego Originalism Center, Michael Rappaport, who's a friend of mine and I like Michael. um, But he he is one of the leading originalists and, and he runs a center on originalism and all that. Mike takes the position, and he know, and I'm not saying anything to you I haven't said right to his face. Mike takes the position that if a judge today is 51-49% sure that the original meaning of the provision in question uh, is violated by a statute, and, and I don't want to, I mean, how one knows it's 51-49 versus 55, I want to duck that question. But a judge is just slightly more sure than not that a law violates the original meaning. It's his position a judge should strike the law down. I'm leaving aside whether we want that as part of our rule in 2022. I can't think of anything less originalist than that.
1: Am I wrong? Uh, No, you really don't see that view until the late 1790s. And the Federalists start in the late 1790s to assert that the Constitution has delegated to them special authority to determine what the meaning of various provisions are. Uh, and at that point, you start to see uh, an embrace of what now we would call judicial supremacy, the idea that it is specifically up to judges to determine the meaning of the Constitution. Uh, in the late 1780s, there's a notion of judicial review that's available, but it's not a notion of judicial supremacy. Rather, the position that people uh, in the late 1780s would embrace, to the extent they would embrace judicial review, uh, was something like, we as judges, along with other government officials, have a responsibility to apply the people's document over the actions of the legislature. And then you get into a question of how much deference you give to the legislature. But nobody would have said none uh, because the legislature spoke directly on behalf of the people. And that, as you were mentioning before, put judges in an inferior position.
0: I assumed you said 1790s, but, but but my assumption is that a strong presumption of constitutionality of state and federal laws went on well beyond the 1790s. Am I wrong about that?
1: No, it, it continues well past the 1790s. But the 1790s is the first time that you see some federalists start to embrace a position of judicial supremacy. One of the things that's really interesting about the Marbury versus Madison decision by Chief Justice Marshall in 1803 is that the logic of his decision is actually a more moderate departmentalist position, yes. not yes. an embrace of the judicial supremacy arguments that were advanced by the a high Federalists. Yes. And so actually the position that is the mainstream position, even among uh Some of the Federalists, such as Chief Justice Marshall, is a an embrace of a more depart- what we would now call a more departmentalist approach to judicial review, which is to say judges, along with other officials in the system, have a responsibility to enforce the Constitution, but not the judicial supremacist view, saying that judges specifically have a particular responsibility to enforce the Constitution. That position is advanced at times. Uh, by the Federalists, by Stephen Douglas, uh, by, uh, some, some of the, uh, proponents of Lochner-era jurisprudence and so on. Um, but it remains a contested position up until basically the civil rights movement. And what's really interesting in American constitutional history about the civil rights movement, among many other things, is that it's a time where the left and the right begin to converge on the question of who gets to decide what the Constitution means. And the debate then shifts to how does right. the Supreme Court right. get to decide what the Constitution means? And so for a long period of our history, this would have been the central question. Who gets to decide the Constitution's meaning? A mainstream position would have been the Supreme Court plays a role in determining the Constitution's meaning, but it is not the sole interpreter. Uh, and it's really only uh, after we get to the 1950s that uh, that, Debate starts to die out, and we shift into a debate about originalism, pluralism, living constitutionalism, etc.
0: For the non lawyers listening, and there are some, I think. Um, so, what Judd is referring to there is a case called Cooper versus Aaron. Uh, I believe it's 1958, don't hold me to that, but I think it's 58. And That's right. what's, what's ironic about, so Cooper is a case where the governor of Arkansas said, we don't have to apply, we don't have to comply with Brown. We're not bound by Brown. We weren't parties to Brown versus Board of Education. Um, and, and, and in a unanimously, in a unanimous opinion signed by all the justices, which I think is extraordinarily rare, uh, the court says, yes, you do. And then the court miscites Marbury for judicial, <laughs> you're laughing, but I had that correct, right? The court That's miscites right. Marbury for judicial supremacy, and says, we are the final authoritative decider of what the Constitution means. But that's 1958. And one one more thing before I have you respond. the uh, Another irony of all this, that's one irony, another irony is that the original originalists, the Borks, the Raoul Burgers, um, maybe even the Stephen Calabresis, though I'm not sure, I I don't want to ascribe this for you to Steve, because I'm not sure it's true, but it might be. A lot of originalists in the 70s and 80s said that Cooper was wrong, (laughs) said that that we shouldn't have judicial supremacy, said we should have departmentalism. Now, that all faded out in the early 90s. But even in the mid to late 80s, really well-respected originalists said Cooper was wrong. Do I have that correct?
1: Uh, Yeah, and and you will find in constitutional law uh, professors' minds this sort of lingering attitude about departmentalism, uh, in part because in uh, our legal culture we have um, uh, an awareness as constitutional law professors of what came before right I think that more broadly you just don't have that because people aren't aware of that history they aren't aware that for instance Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Delano Roosevelt were opponents of judicial supremacy it's a really long-standing important part of our tradition but it's one that we, uh, we don't teach in um, high school civics anymore because it's associated now with opposition to the civil rights movement.
0: You know, Judd, um I, I hadn't thought about it this way exactly, but what you said triggered something with me. It is—it is, it is incredibly ironic, I think, that the only—I re- think—the only reason today that we really do stand by judicial supremacy as a country, more or less, is because. Reagan and Bush appointed judges for 12 years from 1980 to 1992, capturing the federal judiciary, capturing the Supreme Court for most purposes. And this deference, departmentalism prong of originalism went away because as a political matter, those who identified as originalists now controlled the judiciary and didn't want the deference and didn't want the idea that judges were only one of three possible sources of constitutional meaning because now they controlled things. And given Ronald Reagan's campaign in 1980 and 84 about limiting judges, there is a great irony to all that, don't we think?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think the harder thing to understand is why liberals who haven't had control of the court for 60 years continue to embrace this. I mean, that that's the more difficult thing I, in, in my view. Yeah. Um, now, you know, there's a... a Fairly straightforward answer to that, which is the civil rights movement and Roe, and to some extent voting rights, um, which continue to be protected by the Supreme Court uh, based on cases decided in the '60s, remain liberal priorities. And so, there's certainly something to that. that liberals are getting something out of the Supreme Court, um, and have a vision of what the Supreme Court at least could be. Uh, that is still animating their thought, um, but it's it's also a bit puzzling in light of the longer arc of constitutional history that you would have the left lined up in favor of judicial power, even without having control of the court uh, for such a long period of time.
0: So I, I um. Uh, I have given enormous thought to that question. Why do liberals, why did liberals, I think it's past tense now, mostly. Why did liberals continue to extol the virtues of a strong, of strong judicial review in a world where they lost for most of history except for 20 years in the 60s? Um, when I started teaching in 1991, I don't even know where, you, I don't want to know where you were in 1991, but when I started teaching in 1991, all of my, li- I said to my liberal friends, you're wrong about the court. And we're going to lose eventually. I'm a progressive, you know. We're going to lose eventually. None of them would buy it because—so so I think the that's a long way of saying my answer to your question is um, there was this romantic idea of the war in court and that that somehow reflected a large part of history or we could do it again. And, and I, I've always thought that was naive. I still do. I will tell you as a progressive advocating for judicial deference for three decades— I have seen a tremendous change because of the current politics. And when I talk to progressives about this, I try to say to them, you are against strong judicial review for the wrong reasons. You're against it now because we've lost. That's the wrong reason. The right reason is it's a bad idea. Starting in, a, in Rawls's veil of ignorance, it's just a bad idea to have unelected life tenure judges having this much power. I got nowhere with that until three years ago. And now I'm like the star. Anyway, I'm um, sorry for that. You want to react to that? That's...
1: No, I mean, yeah. and, and to be clear, I think there are some good reasons to have uh, judges maintaining some level of supervision over politics. You might worry about minority interests, for instance. Right. Uh, but one thing that we have learned is that the Supreme Court is uh, having ultimate authority is not sufficient to the protection <laughs> of minority interests that uh, It requires a broader political culture to support those interests and um and so I think this is something that is really worth reconsidering. Um, I hope that that conversation is one that 's outside of uh law schools and constitutional law conferences. Yeah. I think yeah. this is something that actually needs to be uh discussed politically. Uh, I worry about so much of our constitutional discourse taking place. In, in such elite circles, uh, when it 's really about what our document means, uh, and that that our extends much broad, more broadly right. uh, than the people who are often pontif- pontificating on these things,
0: yeah, you and me both. When I get into that sometimes, I make a very compelling case. I think the court has been to the right of Congress almost forever. I mean, we can talk about the states, but when it comes to Congress, the court has been to the, the Congress has been to the left of the court for most of American. History. So, if one's goal is simply progressive politics, one needs to take a real hard look <laughs> at what they want judges to do. Anyway, um,
1: I want well, to get. I, I think okay, that that might be true. And then the other thing to keep in mind is the point I was uh, mentioning earlier, which is the way we think as lawyers, yes. or the way one would think as a judge, is shaped by attitudes that you're acculturated to in law school, and that tends to be even in a non-political sense sort of conservative and recognizing limits. And that way of thinking uh, acculturates you to certain attitudes that maybe would not be present in a more sort of broad-ranging political discourse. That was well said.
0: Um, before I ask you specifically about some First Amendment questions, a little bit on the ground because um, we, we, you know, we, we have more than legal historians listening to this, um, I, I want to ask one more really broad question before we get to the First Amendment. Have you made peace with yourself and, and and or that's the terrible way of putting that but but what are your views what is the appropriate role in 2022 for historical analysis in hard constitutional cases so you know justice thomas and 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 Last term's decisions would have us believe, at least when it comes to guns and abortion, that historical analysis is everything. Of course, they dropped all of that in the two religion cases that they decided last term. But if you were king of the world um, and you were advising, the Supreme Court hired you, Judd Campbell, how should we view history? What, Because you are someone who is an expert on
1: both constitutional
0: law and history. What should be the right way of thinking about it?
1: Yeah. So um, my my first response is uh, to fight the premise of the question, okay. which is to say, if I were king of the world, my view on what the Constitution <laughs> means would not be relevant, because I think that constitutional interpretation is a collective project. OK, it's one where each of our views should inform how the people who we give authority to interpret the Constitution, whether judges or legislators uh, go about their job doing that. And that means that we have a sort of agency relationship where judges should be acting on behalf of the people. And I really worry that the current Supreme Court is not viewing their role in that way, that they see themselves as engaged in uh, a sort of theory-based project rather than a project that has to be tethered in some way to the way that the people who they represent as federal appointees (laughs) or as state appointees... Uh, view the Constitution. And I think the way that people in general view the Constitution tends to be much messier, that history is an important part of constitutional interpretation, always has been and very likely always will be, but that there's also a recognition of some degree of stability that's necessary in a constitutional system that requires adherence to precedent that requires a recognition that certain aspects of our constitutional order have changed over time and shouldn't necessarily be undone unless there's some good reason to undo them. And so that, that makes me somewhat worried about, uh, the way that the court's basic mindset about what their job, uh, the way they've formulated that mindset.
0: Okay. I, 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 I appreciate that. And I'm going to try to pin you down again. Um, so, <laughs> the, so, so there's, uh, there's, that was beautifully said. It didn't answer my question, so I'm going to try it again. Um, a judge in Mississippi has a case right now as we as we tape this, uh, challenging a federal ban on f- uh, felons possessing firearms. I guess I'm oversimplifying, yeah. but and he he threw up his hands and said, "The Supreme Court is telling me that I have to only look at history. I'm not a historian. They're not historians. My law clerks aren't historians. Do I need to hire an historian to do this?" And he asked the parties. Sorry, I uh, saw and I talked about that in the last Supreme myths. But let's say – I'm sorry, John. I'm putting you on the Supreme Court of the United States. And All right. And this – by the way, I might vote for that. I think I would. Um, and uh, you have to decide what you're going to do with this federal law that prohibits a felon. Let's say even a nonviolent felon. So I don't think there's an exception in the federal law for that. A nonviolent felon um, uh, from, from possessing a gun. And he says or she says, this federal law violates my constitutional rights. And now you have no choice. You have to start doing some things to figure out who wins and who loses. Right, right. How much does it matter to you? I'm really boring down here. That today's weapons, as a factual matter, have nothing in common, almost nothing, with the muskets of 1791. Is that a? Is that somewhat important? Not important at all. Because not important. In Supreme Court. Medium important clear factual changes, what should we do with history when that happens?
1: Um, yeah, I think, it, I think it's a hard question. Of course, you have to know at the outset, to the extent you're relying on original meaning, what sort of meaning uh, you're looking at. And uh, it could be that if the original meaning of a particular provision was actually one of those rare instances uh, where the text were was creating a new rule, that you'd have to think about that and the level of generality at which you'd read the provision uh, might make the change relevant and it might make the change irrelevant. Um, one thing I will say, uh, so so it's a hard question, uh, but would turn on the particulars of what that constitutional provision meant at the founding or what that right uh, was understood. To mean at the founding, um, followed up by whatever uh subsequent precedents we've accumulated over the years to interpret that right. One thing I will say that so that's that's not very specific, Eric, but one thing I will say that's um uh maybe a bit more responsive is I think that um as a general matter, uh history can play a role and I think a useful role in grounding our constitutional law with respect to general principles and uh, can frame the way we think about what the purpose of a right is, for instance, um, think frame the way we think about who the right might apply to. But I think that when it comes to the specifics of day-to-day litigation, it is a really bad idea to ground the actual adjudication of most rights claims on 18th century historical research. I don't think that's a viable way of actually engaging in... 21st century constitutional jurisprudence. Um, I don't think that judges are capable on a day-to-day uh, level of doing that sort of analysis. Um, and uh, and I also think that um, you're likely to engage in a highly motivated reasoning as a judge, looking to under sources of history and drawing a conclusion that seems to be based on the surface uh, Uh, on a sort of um, neutral, evidence-based claim about what happened in the 18th century, but that is actually based on your own policy judgments. Uh, I think that's highly, highly likely to occur in these sorts of cases, especially when we're dealing with very uh, narrow questions where the historical evidence is going to be incredibly thin and I think if that's what we're doing, we ought to just engage in the policy analysis or we ought to defer to legislatures, uh, one or the other, not do this uh, sort of minute, historical, uh, detailed research. So that's not to say history history shouldn't matter to constitutional uh, litigation in general. Right. I think the Supreme Court has a um, necessary relationship to history. But when it comes to district courts trying to do this sort of work, I'm I'm highly skeptical that that's actually going to be a viable approach.
0: So is Judge Reeves in Mississippi. Um, even if we knew, without a doubt, we all get to the First Amendment, I promise, but I keep, you keep saying things that make me think of other things, so I can't get there. Um, even if we knew, with some degree of historical, with a requisite degree of historical certainty, that... The founding fathers did not expect or want or mean or whatever phrase you want to put in there um, for felons to be disenfranchised, just because they're felons, Uh, excuse me, for felons to lose their right to own a gun just because they're felons. Even if we knew that, it seems to me that's not the question. The question is, well, given the muskets at the time, they may have balanced the right to own a musket or a similar type weapon um, against the, da- the damage a felon can do with a musket, but the issue today is what could a felon do with the type of weapons we have today, and that balance could come out very differently today than it came out then, which is another reason why the historical analysis simply can't get you home, which, le- first of all, do you agree with that before I ask my question?
1: Yeah. In general, rights are regulable in promotion of the public good, but the way you would assess what promotes the public good is looking to what is actually happening at the given moment that you're looking at the rights claim, not based on how somebody 200 years ago would have thought about it. Uh, so, for instance, you have um rights claims in the 1820s in Manhattan where people are talking about the right to use property in a certain way, and the judges say, look, 20 years ago, you could use property in this way and it wouldn't have been a nuisance and the legislature wouldn't have been able to interfere with it. But we're living in a city now and there are certain things the legislature can step in and do now, 20 years later, that it couldn't have done 20 years before because things change and the law has not changed in a sense. The law always said your rights are only regulable in promotion of the public good. But now, in 1826, you cannot put a graveyard in the middle of Manhattan. That is not compliant with sanitary uh, measures that the uh, city of New York has imposed. And those measures, while not suited to a rural community in the 18th century, are perfectly appropriate to Manhattan in the 1820s. And so that sort of reasoning seems right to me from a founding era standpoint, that the basic principles that we're operating under are consistent, but the way those principles would apply over time might change.
0: Well, and that beautifully said again, and that leads me to my biggest frustration with modern legal scholarship and originalism, which is that what we're really talking about in 99% of constitutional law cases that actually get to court are applications, not meanings. I mean, whatever equal protection means, whatever whatever free exercise means, whatever establishment of religion means, whatever well-regulated militia means, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, whatever cruel and neutral punishments mean, whatever they mean, we all agree, or most of us agree, on the principles, free speech, freedom of religion, no cruel or punishments, no unreasonable searches and seizures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Where we're going to disagree reasonably are the applications of those principles to modern-day events. And most what well, the so-called new originalists, the Randy Barnetts, Larry Solomons of the world, Keith Whittington, agree with that. They actually say <laughs> that applications can change. Even if we know what they thought about the application, it can change... If facts change, Solemn says, even if views about facts change, which isn't even the same as facts changing. And my question to you is, why can't we, or I can't I, I guess you're not doing this. I have tried so hard to shift this debate to applications, not meanings. And there's such a resentment to me, uh, about me on that. And there's such a pushback from originalists on that. How do I convince
1: them, (laughs) Judd? I'm
0: asking your advice. Because it is about applications, right? 99% of the
1: time. Yeah, I think a lot of times it is. I mean, there are debates about meaning. So what equal protection meant in the 19th century tended to be something that was more limited, uh, than what we think of as equal protection. Now we refer to it as a general equality principle. But in the 19th century, it was thought more in relation to the protection of private rights and an equality in that protection of private rights. So equal justice in court, for instance, uh, would have been something that the Equal Protection Clause covered. But the Equal Protection Clause said virtually nothing, uh, potentially nothing at all about governmental employment decisions or admissions to public universities. Right. Uh, that was just not what the protection of law was about. Right. Um, and so there are times where this matters, where the underlying interpretation matters, um, and I think that would be especially so with respect to rights provisions that refer to common law rights like the right to a trial by jury and so on. That's not like a general principle. That's just a practice, a common law, and we've got to figure out what that practice entailed. Um, but I think with respect to some of the constitutional provisions that are most often debated today, free exercise, free speech, potentially the right to keep and bear arms, uh, that you're going to get into that debate, and those tend to be the ones that uh, preoccupy a lot of our attention. So, uh, so I agree with you on
0: that. It, it involves applications, not meanings. Okay, we're 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 heading towards the end, and I, I have to get to the First Amendment because you wrote a piece, and you written several pieces in Yale, but the one in Yale on the First Amendment, uh, I think, is one of the most important law review articles written in the last fifteen years. Um, and I've said that before on this podcast many times. And I want to, I want people to be clear because. I have an agenda, so I don't want to hide my agenda. My agenda is to show there are no originalists on the Supreme Court. There never have been actually originalists on the Supreme I mean, we Court. We'll argue about Justice Black some other time. There are no modern originalists on the Supreme Court, not Scalia, not Thomas, not Kavanaugh, not any of them. And one of – I have a thousand reasons for that. But one of the reasons I have is because other than the Pentagon Papers case, which involved a prior restraint on speech, I think um, – I don't know of any other prior restraints that reached the Supreme Court. There may have been one or two others. But leaving aside prior restraints, what you argued about, what I think you argued in Yale was free speech doctrine and all of its complications and content-neutral restrictions and viewpoint restrictions and government speech and public forum analysis and all of that. Maybe it's right. Maybe it's wrong. You weren't taking a position. But it cannot be defended on an originalist basis. Or at least no one has yet been able to defend it on an original basis. Is that a fair summary of that, of your view there?
1: Yeah. What, what we're doing today with respect to First Amendment doctrine uh, bears no resemblance at all to the way that the founders would have thought about the First Amendment. Uh, we tend to think of the First Amendment as a staunchly libertarian restriction on governmental power. We tend to think of it as a requirement of neutrality between different statements. Uh, neutrality, not just as a viewpoint, but also as to content, so that governmental restrictions of advertising are subject to very rigorous uh, judicial scrutiny. Uh, Not necessarily strict scrutiny, but the effort to uh, limit the purchase of prescriber information (laughs) by uh, pharmaceutical companies in Vermont was struck down as being unconstitutional. That's um, uh, something that's scarcely imaginable. I just taught in class the other day a case in which, uh, the United States Supreme Court overturned the decision of the JV cheerleading coach yeah, I to suspend case. a, yeah. uh, <laughs> play a cheerleader on the JV cheerleading team, yeah. uh, for posting, uh, a profane snap on Snapchat. I mean, the idea that that would have been an issue of constitutional concern to anybody in the 1860s when they were passing the privileges or immunities clause is just, I mean, it's frankly absurd. Um, and so, uh, yeah, this is an area where there's just a profound disconnect. Um, and I think in part it's because people thought that the first amendment was just a statement of an aspiration and that it was up to judges to fill, uh, its content with, uh, whatever they could based on the underlying values that were at stake. I think in part that idea was advanced or fueled by the sense that all of the earlier cases that occurred at the state level were irrelevant because they weren't first amendment cases. And one of the things that I've been trying to say, uh, not just in the paper you're referring to, but in some of my more recent scholarship, is that this is reflecting a really uh, profound misunderstanding of earlier rights discourse that actually all of these state cases that we tend to ignore, that embraced a much more limited conception of what free speech was, uh, are relevant to the First Amendment because they recognize an undergirding uh, re- general law right, a right that was recognized to exist in every state and at the federal level, and that all the First Amendment is doing, this picks up on my initial framing at the outset, is... Uh, recognizing and reaffirming the existence of a right that already existed. <laughs> right. And so uh, once you have that in view, then a lot of these earlier state cases become immediately relevant to try and understand the original meaning of the First Amendment. Uh, and at that point it becomes very, very difficult to argue that anything we're doing has uh, even a semblance uh, of connection to what came before.
0: So you and I have just agreed that Almost all free speech doctrine articulated by the post-19, let's say, 30s Supreme Court of the United States uh, might be right or wrong, good or bad, but it's, there's no originalist flavor to it. Yet Scalia, Thomas, Kavanaugh, Barrett, they all believe in it very strongly. Now, one could maybe say, all right, but that's an exception. You know, so n- no human's perfect. I don't expect consistency 100 percent from anybody, much less Supreme Court judges with life tenure. Um, so Siegel, you're overstating the case. But what I actually want – so that's, an, that's a critique. My response to that critique often is no. What Judd has shown about the First Amendment is actually true for most other areas of constitutional law. Strict scrutiny for affirmative action has no originalist basis, much less striking down all affirmative action. I'm not even sure Brown versus Board is, an original, is justifiable on originalism. I think it is justifiable on textualism. I don't want to get there right now because it's a long
1: conversation. Um, wh- how do they get away with it? <laughs> I mean. Well, I. I think that part of it comes back to the point where we began, okay. which is our way of thinking about fundamental rights is so different from the way the founders did that unless you reimagine the very idea of constitutional rights, uh, it's hard to see the disconnect. So we tend to think about constitutional rights as textual objects. And so you read the First Amendment and you think, oh, it's embracing the freedom of speech. I know what the freedom of speech is because I've Grown up in an environment where it has a particular meaning right. and nobody has been questioning that meaning. In fact, to be a non libertarian about free speech is often described as being anti free speech. Uh, that's just the way we talk today. That's me. And so it's, it's just second, it's second nature now, uh, to think in those ways. And, um, and I think in that, in that sense, uh, the, Patterns of thought that shape modern views of the First Amendment are replicated in uh, gun rights cases, free exercise yes. cases, and so on. 100%. Uh, so in part, what I'm trying to do in my research is recover earlier ways of thinking about free speech. Right. But the broader point is to say, actually, these earlier ways of thinking about free speech are emblematic of deeper disconnect in the way that rights discourse operated at the founding.
0: Which is why we have no originalist justices. All right. Um, I have one last I, I, I mean, I don't, I, you can respond to that, but because none of the ju- originalist justices accept what you just said, I don't think they're originalists. because if they were, they would accept what you just said.
1: It would be very difficult to uh, engage in an originalist law, ref- like a genuinely originalist yeah. law reform project yeah. here, in part because of the way that um, our minds work and also in part because of the way that... Uh, that legal change occurs. Yes. Our minds are open to new ideas, but usually only one or maybe two steps away from the way we currently think. <laughs> it's very hard to embrace a new idea that's like 10 different steps away from the way we currently think. We're just instinctively resistant to that. Yes. And that's especially true of judges, right? Like it's possible to argue for a change in the law that is one or maybe in a stretch, two steps away from where we are now, but it's impossible to argue successfully for a change in law that's 15 step removes from from where we are. And so it'd be very, very difficult to actually do real uh, 18th century constitutionalism in today's environment. For one thing, it would require not doing it in court. And so the very premise of, <laughs> right. you know, our conversation here uh, in some ways presupposes that, that it's not possible because what we're talking about is judges doing this in court.
0: And, Jed, I want to be really clear about this for those listening. Uh, I am not in, in any of my scholarship work, podcasts, blog posts ever suggesting we should go back to a 19th or 18th century view of constitutionalism because it's an 18th century view of constitutionalism. Right. There are aspects of it that I think are better than our world Today is a policy matter for today's world. But the real point I want to make is it, is, is what you just said, I think, is exactly right. It is—and therefore, there's no real originalism around. <laughs> and that's the—among po- judges. And that's the, the point I'm trying to get people to see. They're not acting as originalists. Whatever they're doing, they do- might be right, but it's—like, I don't think you're criticizing— on a policy level, a lot of the free speech doctrines. I actually do. I don't think you're doing that. I think what you're saying is, don't call yourself an originalist and adopt these doctrines, uh, unless we throw in precedent as a you know constraint. That's a much longer conversation. I have one last. We're almost out of time. One really big question for you. Uh, the biggest so far I've asked. I thought I've asked all the big questions, but there's one more. Um, I just finished uh, uh, um, an upcoming book by Jonathan Gannett, Um and Jonathan makes a lot of. Similar points to what you've been making. But he makes one even more fundamental point that he thinks undercuts originalism entirely. I, I don't know if I agree with that, but I, I do agree with his his statement, which is they didn't think of the Constitution as a closed written document. That's not that's not how Randy Barnett is big on, on contract law and the analogies between contract law and, and, and constitutional law and, and, and a lot of other... Chris Green on the oath. It's written down. It's to this constitution. Chris is big on this constitution. But that's not how Jonathan says the founding fathers thought about it at all. They thought about the constitution as a subset of a much bigger, more complex set of rules and regulations.
1: Does he have a right? I, it, in... Principle, yes. I mean, I do think Jonathan is aware that the Constitution as a written document yeah, well, yeah. has words in yeah. it. <laughs> and he's also aware that certain aspects of it were constitutive of aspects of the fundamental law that the founders were affirmatively creating through text. Um, but the important thing that he's driving at, which I agree with, is um, that even though those limited aspects of founding era thought were available at the time, viewing the Constitution in in a sense as a text and viewing certain parts of it as being constituted through the textual uh, enumeration and subsequent adoption, there was also a sense that a lot of aspects of fundamental law were coming from other parts of American uh, constitutional tradition, from reasoning about the social contract, from thinking about natural law and the role of reason in structuring a political society. And those aspects of it tend to drop out in modern discourse. So another way of thinking about this is um, we have a real difficulty in our current situation of appreciating the earlier way of thinking because we use one word to mean two different things. We use the term constitution to mean system of fundamental law and we use that term to mean the written document. And what Jonathan would say is that avail the, the founders had the same problem. <laughs> they often used the term constitution to mean written document, and they often used the term to mean system of fundamental law. But they had an appreciation in a way that we tend to uh, not have today that those are actually two different concepts, And that there was a contested relationship between those concepts and that the system of fundamental law was informed by a much wider range of sources, including reasoning about the social contract, uh, than just the written text.
0: Which uh, brings us back to the very beginning of the podcast, which is that. Um, and, and Both then and, and in a better world today, constitutional law would not be the sole province of joy lawyers and judges and, and, and maybe members of Congress. It would be something all the people did and all the people talked about and all the people engaged with.
1: And I don't think that's our world. Um, last question. Any chance of getting- And ironically, that's the world that in part Madison was trying to create yes. through adopting the Bill of Rights. Yes. He His principal argument in the speech <laughs> – on June 8th of uh, 1789, was that we need a Bill of Rights so that the people can become better aware of their own rights and work to secure them. Uh, and that aspect of uh, the Bill of Rights has really dropped out.
0: I'm going to leave it there. Judge. thank you so much for doing this. Once again, I learned a lot. I enjoy talking to you,
1: and I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks so much. Happy Thanksgiving. You too.